Hey, John, how's it going? This is Daryl. Not bad, Daryl. How are you? Pretty good. Hey, um, we're on the show with John Gentile. John, give us a background about yourself. All right. Um, thanks for having me on. Um, I'm originally from Waterbury, Connecticut, and uh, came out to Vegas well, probably about uh, 27 years ago. But in Connecticut, my martial arts background, I did probably what everybody else did at 12 years old. I, I sought out and took Tang Sudo lessons because it was popular back there. So that was my first uh, exploration into, let's say, traditional type martial art. So uh, I got involved with karate for a couple of years. And then when I hit about 14 years of age, 15 years of age, <clears throat> I ended up meeting this guy that would come around and do seminars and workshops. His name was Joseph Rossi. Rossi was an older guy, but he was also um, a martial artist himself and World War II vet. So he taught an art called Filipino Kun Tao. Now, his Kun Tao compared to the Tang Sudo, he called it Kun Tao self-defense. Compared to what I was really doing in Tang Sudo, which was fun at the time, uh, Kun Tao really had no rules. So he called it self-defense, and basically I stayed with him pretty much forever till a guy passed. Um, but, uh, you know, he got me outside of that traditional curriculum. I mean, this guy was pinching, stomping. It was in close, elbows, knees, a lot of good clinch type work, choke, choke escapes, things like that, predicament type things. You know, things where you have rote rehearsal, you do over and over. Taught me how to throw people because we had a lot of throws that we did that were kind of incorporated in that. And, uh, he left me with a major impact uh, on my self-defense. Uh, so I ended up training with him, and I just thought it was more practical. So I ended up getting out of Tang Sudo, focused in my time with his club. I left with another student, Drew Serrano. We ended up going over together. And here I am, 14 years of age, training with a lot of adults, a lot of guys in that in the neighborhood. And it was a back east thing for sure. It was a lot of tough guys down there. But... uh I ended up getting my black belt in 1990 from Mike Burns, who ran the club, and Grandmaster Rossi. At that time, he was considered a grandmaster. So, um, a lot of fun, great self-defense. And then I took a vacation to Vegas in 1990 after graduating from college. I was going to college then at Western Connecticut State University. I got a degree in public law. And here I was trying to figure out what to do with it. I got out. And I ended up going on vacation out here in Vegas in 1990. And I'm thinking, you know, there's no cat and tree calls out here. <clears throat> this could be a fun place to work, 24th. After my vacation is over, I decide, you know, let me apply and uh, see if I can get in. Well, it's the furthest place I applied, and when you know it, I ended up getting in. So I ended up hiring on in 91. And after 26 and a half years or so, I mean, I went through auto theft, I worked in criminal intel, I was a sergeant for 13 years, ran the surveillance team, rope, cat, which is basically a criminal apprehension team. Um, I had a blast. I mean, anybody that's in the business as you are, uh, you know, there's things you don't like, but man, it was, it was a really good run. And in 93, because I was still training, and I was training like backyard training, still trying to maintain my my skill level. Um, obviously, you get some skill, you know, regular training, but you tactics. I became a certified defensive tactics instructor in '93. So after you know, we had a couple week program, and covered a variety of stuff. You know, a lot of custody type things. You know how that goes. Um, it was it was good. And then you, I got it to take it to another level as far as training the squad. So around 93, in the time Vegas was here, all you had really was mostly karate. 
you had a judo judo club here, maybe one or two. You had mostly karate for kid type outfits that were set up. <clears throat> and you had a couple kung fu schools, but nothing that really set me over the top. You, you know, you are a little prejudicial when you train and you want something similar to what you've probably been training. And I wasn't really, uh, you know, earmarked to kind of open up a school. But as it would happen, I opened up a school in 93. And that school was called American Filipino Self-Defense Center. So I opened up that school in 93. <clears throat> I get I get a bunch of students that were predominantly like karate people that came over. So I thought I was doing pretty good. UFC comes out, and I'm an avid uh, martial arts person as far as, you know, seeking out what's good and looking around. But when the UFC came out in 93... I have to say it left an impact with me, you know, as far as the Gracies and the mixture of styles and, you know, how people, you know, we were in a period of transition. I was living through it, you know. So it really, really left a mark on me watching the Gracies. And, and I was kind of like, how do you beat a Gracie guy? I mean, how do you beat a Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy? You got to know jiu-jitsu. Right. I, I know the game. You got to know what they're doing. And this contestant practice it because you have to you know to me you have to be versatile you have to have like self-defense in your background and i'm not saying brazilian jiu-jitsu doesn't have self-defense don't don't get it but every art does have a pretty good focus if you know how to use it you know you can use so but i thought you know geez this brazilian jiu-jitsu stuff this guy's beating everybody and he's tough he was he was super tough but some of the guys he fought were tough. Some were not. You know, some of it was kind of funny to watch a couple of them. Well, but, well in that uh, first one, there was um, there was a guy that did karate. I think his name was Gerard Judo. It was some French Gerardo, guy or, yeah. or from Canada. Yeah. And he did pretty good in the tournament. Yeah, he was from, he was from Holland. And Holland does. Uh, he was a Holland guy. But I tell you what, you're right. He definitely was nasty. <laughs> He definitely would, you know, he definitely was a guy, hey, you want to mess with me? You know, he, he stepped up. Got to give him credit. And then there you was, know, but, um, there was another guy that was a Tang Sudo black belt, uh, Gary Goodrich. He did pretty good in the tournament. I think he was maybe, well, I don't know if he was in the first one. He might have been in the second one or the third one, but he did pretty good uh, Goodrich, also. Yeah, Goodrich was a tough son of a gun. Some of those guys did come in after five, but I mean, if you think about one, two, three, four, five, those were like the no rules ones. Yeah. Dan Severn came in. You know, Dan Severn was a monster. And you know, how do you not look at that stuff and you're doing a, uh, whatever art you're doing? doesn't really matter what you're doing. How do you look at that stuff and go, this is, you know, everything I'm doing is, is fine and well, but I have to know this. Right. These guys are out. Be smart, right? So. Right. Definitely left impact, and you know, I, I still enjoy watching uh, watching the fights. It's just my in my background, I guess. But I'm like looking at this stuff. I'm running a club at the time. I start um, my buddy, my one of my black belts under me worked at a bar at the Rio, and he ended up mixing up with a guy named Marco Albuquerque. And not a lot of people know that name, but he was the coach of what would later be Marco Uvas, if you remember that guy. All right, yeah, I do. Anyway, this is this was the guy, one of the most hospitable guys I met. Um, he had talked to my friend at the bar. He was with uh, another guy. It was with him, but they ended up coming to the club that I had. I unlocked the door. We had some private sessions. He was a Brazilian guy from Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you know. So here I am doing it, and I tell you what, I, I just it was one of those things back then. I couldn't get enough of grappling. You know, I was just like, I was hung up on it. So here I am teaching the Kun Tao and I start learning private classes with this Marco Albuquerque. This poor guy, he was a coach, really friendly guy, really kind of sad story. But as far as his talent, he was the beginning of what would be my journey in Rapland. And just really had a lot of respect for, for him and his partner. He had a partner, Kenny, that came in. They just were tough guys. Kenny was a tough guy, but he was a smaller guy, smaller than me. But you know how it is. Jiu-Jitsu is like a snake, and a, a good guy can make a lot of things work, you know? Yeah. And, you know, it's just time. you got to put in that mat time. But that that was my first impact to grappling. And so here I am sitting around. I'm teaching. I'm running the club. I'm working graveyard for police and, uh, you know, trying to juggle a little bit, you know, and, uh, the, the grappling stuff 
I'm not enough I could teach anything, but man, I was starting to really enjoy it. And I wanted something a little extra. And jiu-jitsu wasn't going to fulfill that, but we didn't have as many Brazilian people, Brazilian jiu-jitsu people out here, you know, at that time. We had John Lewis that had cropped up, you know, but we didn't have a lot. I think John Lewis may have had the the kind of the angle at that time. I don't yeah. know if you remember uh, those guys. Yeah, he was but, like um, the first one here, I think. <clears throat> so he was, we're, we're talking kind of mid-90s. And this kind of Vegas martial art evolution, I'm kind of giving you a little history <laughs> the way I saw it. But, you know, so here I am, my, my club was in Chinatown, which is now Chinatown, but it wasn't Chinatown back then. So we were right up in that area. And, uh, you know, I used to read a lot. So I'm reading about this guy and I see this guy on the cover of this magazine and he's wearing a singlet, you know, a wrestling singlet. Yeah. And he's like punching this guy and I aware of it you know videos you know were kind of vhs was was still out right but anyway this guy sold videos i did all stuff putting everything without a gate which you know police work at the time you know to me it's really hot out here it just make made pretty good sense and he, he started like grappler so i'm like well who is this guy you know it turns out his name is larry hartzell you know write a letter which nobody writes letters anymore but i wrote him a letter I was impressed with the article. I liked the locks. I liked the takedowns. I said, hey, you got anything going in Vegas? He ends up calling me up because of my letter and publish workshops, seminars, and things like that. It would become a friendship. Little did I know, but he did other things. The guy was a Golden Glove boxer. He was a Kali guy that did stick and knife. So when he would come out, I don't know. Well, okay. So I don't know if you got it, but Larry Hart turned out to be an original student of Bruce Lee here. In a multifaceted program, he thought, but he's familiar with pummeling and grabs and all that stuff. We were doing it. And uh, his top student uh, would turn out to be uh, another guy I met named Eric Paulson. And Eric's pretty popular in the grappling world. He's and, a beast. Uh, that He's a beast. But he was like Larry's uh, number one guy. So when they would do workshops and camps, we did a couple of them. Whatever Larry didn't cover. Uh, he would teach you kind of like three. He would teach you some standing locks. He might teach you some different stuff. And then Eric would come in for the Victor Nagy throws and things like that. You know, like he'd, he'd press it on you. You know, you do a lot of stuff with him. But they were wealth of knowledge. And uh, probably biggest impact with that guy was uh, maybe open-mindedness. You know, the, the guy was just so open. Uh, and, you know, maybe subjective into what he liked for each move, but he was very open to like catch as catch can Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, which at that time, you know, it was at the Inasano Academy, which is where he was kind of out of. He was a good friend of Dan Inasanto. If anybody doesn't know Dan Inasanto, Google his name. Right. You'll find tons and tons of material. He's like, you know, he's like an idol, you know, in the weaponry world and martial arts world. But so Larry was his best friend for like over 35 years. And, you know, you had the curriculum of Larry because Larry was, when Larry trained with Bruce Lee, he was a judo black belt. So his Jeet Kune Do, which is not a style, by the way, Jeet Kune Do was a synonymous word with basically um, a way of doing things, not necessarily an art. It was a way of finding out what the ranges of fighting were and then working within them using basically other arts and it encouraged training in multiple disciplines rather than just focusing on one strict discipline. You would, you would work on other things, you know? So when you had workshops, you were always working different material. You were stand up, a little collie knife edged weapons. You might be working some stick work. Uh, and, and little known fact, some people don't like collie or stick work, but there's a lot of rhyme to reason. A lot of people just don't realize it. You think the double sticks are kind of like, um, you know, they look pretty, this and that. You're not going to walk down the street with two sticks. We know that. But, you know, realistically, a lot of things you do, even in jiu-jitsu art, is to get your measure up to your right. That's why you see guys walking with two sticks. So you do train with them, you know? Yeah. You know? So, uh, it's kind of, so back in the 90s, uh, I'm mixing with Larry Hartzell. I come around 97. I can grasp the grappling, so I offered at the club. So I'm teaching 
Jikundo, which is kind of a formless class. There's a structure to it, but I've got a Jikundo class, I've got a Kuntao class, and I've got a grappling class. I'm still working graveyard. I, I got transferred at that time, but you know, for the most part, I'm, I'm working. I'm working two jobs, as you know how that can be. Yeah. So there's a plus and minus to running a club. It forces you to work out a lot more than probably you'd like sometimes. But it's uh, it was it was great. I would never never change it. You know. So running that grappling program, and um, you know, it's more integrated. I start training with some other people. Jalamaru, he's a Kundo guy. He gave me some some pretty good stuff. He introduced me to a Russian guy named Alexei Chigarinsky. Uh, Alexei was a former Sputnets guy who uh, was real Russian from St. Petersburg, if you know what I'm saying. So um, very raw. He was in the Olympic Games. He was an Olympian back when we boycotted uh, the Barcelona Games. And just an interesting guy. Um, well, I brought him in. You know, because I wasn't really fully claimed into any one grappling system. I was like, well, this looks really good. The Sambo guys are good. They got ankle locks, knee bars, and things like that. Let me start training with this guy. So I have classes on Saturdays with him. And uh, I just kind of blended it in with my grappling. Because I finished up with that. I had to close the club down in 2000. But uh, I end up... Now being a good student, I end up seeking out Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and uh, are you I found a place are you training someplace? I I was training for about six seven years about six seven years under a guy uh, Mika Sapili. Oh okay. Yeah, so I trained over his place, and at the time he was affiliated with uh, Higgin Machado. All right, when I was there, uh, face when I was there, uh, we had. Like, uh, so he had the club, his club was in uh, West Charleston at the time. So it was actually in the old location. You've got a new one now over there on Charleston. It's bigger, you know. But um, what was good there is I got to go to day classes with the job. It kind of worked out pretty good. So with him going a few days a week, um, I think I was working swing shift or something at the time. So, but I stayed with him till about probably 2009. And then I kind of went off the grid. I have to find time to be motivated, I guess, you know? I do really want to get back to it. I've got a real to get back into it because all martial arts, you know, no matter what I say, this is good or that's good. One thing I really appreciated about the Brazilian jiu-jitsu and the culture there was the rolling around, uh, you know, how you, you can't, you know, you have a different angle of how you do techniques. You know, you have to put mat time in to get better. And uh, to me, I thought it was... It's a it's a great art. If nobody does it, I always recommend it to people. I'm like, listen, you know, you don't have to do what I'm doing, but you should be doing some grappling as well. You know. All right. Now during no, your, I mean, now I did, during your um during the time you were you were working as a police officer, did you ever have to use any of your martial arts, you know, as a defense? Well, of course. I mean, that uh, kind of goes with it. But, you know, the arm bars are your most common control type tools that you're using. You know, I mean, you learn in the academy, you know, hey, this is a front wrist lock. This is a reverse wrist lock. Pretty much every martial arts system has the same lock. I mean, you know, no matter how you do it. I think the biggest thing is application, you know, applying something you've learned, you know, and right. applying it correctly or adapting the move. Yeah, very, very true. Well, uh, currently, just to, to kind of cap off. My bio biography is uh, I'm currently, for several years, been involved with the instructorship program under Guru Dan and Asanto, and I've spent a lot of time the last, you know, once a student, always a student, which is fantastic, because that's the mindset I think anybody should have. Right. Because if you're not learning, you know, you've got to keep learning. you got to learn what's out there. And uh, I have focused a lot more on the Kali, the weapons, uh, empty hand. You know, does grappling come into play? Sure. You still have to, you know, everybody should learn how to pummel. Everybody should learn how to, you know, uh, you know, you're not going to stay in a guard. I mean, if you're the, uh, if you're a policeman, mobility is way, way important. You got to right. be moving. But if you throw a kick, throw a knee and someone grabs your leg and takes you down to the ground, you better have some skill and, you know, some knowledge on how do I, you know, get back up? All right. How do I counter, you know, whatever this guy's doing to him or this guy outweighs me? How can I move him? You know, 
it, it creates a lot of uh, points like that. But but these days, like I said, you know, a lot of my training, uh, my focus has been with CELOT, Indonesian type fighting, and the Kali systems that are out there, like Pekiti Tersha and uh, La Costa and Asano Blend. Those are some really good systems. And they're good because they have a lot of different moves. There's takedowns involved. And the edged weapon or the knife or the stick is, it's thought of that when you're practicing, no matter what, that the guy is going to probably have a weapon. Weapon versus weapon, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the issue that some people do have with that, obviously, is that it's rote rehearsal versus like wrestling, you know, or boxing. You know, let's face it, you know, you're getting hit in the face. You got to kind of adjust because you got hit. Or you go for an arm bar, you got to like pivot, move. So your training methodology, you have to kind of have some sort of stress or have a way that you can get these motor skills up to actually make some of this stuff happen. But think about it. When you hired on and you do a felony car stop, when you were in the academy, you learned the basics. And it pretty much stuck with you along the way. And every time you do a felony car stop, you're trying to do it the right way. Safe. All right. So I think that's the point you're trying to get to with, with some of the, the other arts. But like I said, I'm pretty open pretty open to it. It just has to have some practical functionality for me to to want to really learn it and get in there and do it. You know? Right. Do you plan on uh, opening up in a, a gym again? Well, I'm currently, I have a police consulting company called Sensitive Training Solutions. And I know that sounds kind of funny, but it's, uh, it, it, I'm sorry, not sensitive, it's sensible. Sensible Training Solutions. And that sounds even more funny. Because, you know, everything has to be reasonable and use of force, right? That's kind of how things are today. All right. Um, and so I'm teaching on the outside now. I've got about six classes. Um, surveillance, I had a heavy background in surveillance and some of those areas. So I teach about three or four classes in the investigative sense. And then I have Edge Weapons 101, which is my version of uh, an officer being a little closer than he should be, encountering a uh, last-ditch effort, maybe a guy that pulls out a knife. You know, so I have that class. Right. And I have another class. Another class that's becoming popular. It's called uh, Duty Knife as a Backup Weapon. But it's really, you know, the knife itself is a PR problem with policing. And so we're trying to make it where it's not. And trying to say, like, listen, if you're going to carry a knife, when you want to learn a little bit about how to use it, I mean, you've got an expandable baton, you've got a mace, or you've got a taser. Why wouldn't you want to learn how this knife in your belt works, you know? All right. So we talk about deployment. We talk about size of the knife. We talk about comfort. We talk about how you're going to deploy it. But, you know, you got to remember, too, the deployment of that knife generally is going to be used as a second weapon or a backup weapon. Your castle, your gun in your castle is still your number one. You've got to get back to it, you know? Right. What What do you think is the know, best defense against a knife besides a firearm? I mean, what could somebody do if if they were attacked by someone with a knife? Well, I think if you're attacked by somebody with a knife, first of all, your your best friend, of course, is distance. Because if you're standing there and you have aggression, you run up to somebody, let's say, who is suicidal or fight or flight. You're going to challenge yourself to have an, either kill this guy or be killed yourself running up on him. I mean, distance is your friend. you got to put something between you and the guy with the assailant with the knife or, or the suicidal person. I say it like that because that's a lot of the calls you get. In patrol is people deranged or suicidal or fight or flight. You know, if a murderer is in front of your car, he's got nothing to lose, you know. So um, in Metro... I don't have to tell you, over the last year, year and a half, there's been quite a bit of uh, cases where officers have survived knife attacks. And a tactical retreat, although it doesn't sound very sexy, um, can be very good for you to get your, your gun out and mitigate the threat. So my favorite is to use a gun against a knife. Because, you know, you remember when you think about... Uh, you know, that, that saying, of course, is famous by Sean Connery, you know, in a movie. But, you know, you got to get, you don't want to be going in there with empty hands. Empty hands is really a last resort. It really is. Because every strike with a knife can be considered a good one, depending on how sharp, how long, how the, how he's deploying the knife. 
Uh, your vest can get punctured pretty easy with a smaller knife with a good, you know, pick to it. Uh, larger, you know, sometimes if you get slashed, your vest, I've seen demonstrations on this, you might survive a, a chest slash with a knife. Um, but a direct poke or stab, which is the shortest distance between two points, is a nice straight line, you could be in big trouble. And, you know, it's soft tissue areas. I mean, you get shot once, the bullet may go through you. That's probably the end of it. But when a knife is there, it's up close and personal. And it's not going to be nice, you know? Yeah. And uh, so I, I would say, you know, I, like I just taught a class this morning, and uh, we were going over a couple of videos. I was up um, with some officers. And, you know, sometimes videos you can quarterback all day long, but realistically, they're there for learning. I mean, these people have gone through it. And when that stress hits you, I don't have to tell you, calm and passive, and all of a sudden just fire up. Uh, and there's sometimes uh, we know that something is not quite right. And sometimes we have a details of a call that tells us, hey, there's going to be some danger with this call. So those are the things you can prepare a little bit more for than the instantaneous, okay, I'm going to cut you. I'm referring to a couple incidents I've seen, you know, the, over the last year in Metro's jurisdiction, you know. Right. But it's, it's been surprising how many knife attacks there actually has been. So my my favorite three things really is distance, put something in between you and the, the you know, the person, and, you know, have your lethal weapon out. You know, they talk that 21-foot rule, which is the, the you know, tooler drill. Tooler drill is, was, uh, uh, guy was in Utah and he came up with this drill and said 21 feet. That drill in itself, um, does have some standing to some degree, but it's been challenged back and forth. It still is okay to discuss and have. I mean, it's a holstered firearm. Guy is running at you and they say that's the safest you know, areas are obviously the one with the most distance, you know? Yeah. Of course you gotta step you gotta step offline. You should be stepping offline and doing different things. You can definitely help your chances if you're within that distance. But you have to have some footwork to be able to move. Mobility, get the hell out of the way. And your gun being out would be a smart thing to have initially. But you don't always know that, granted, you know. Um and you gotta make adjustments. But I think it's a big issue. I think it's, you know, I think police, getting police to grapple in the 90s was not not an easy thing. I mean, Jason Harney was running the academy at the time. And I don't know if you remember him, but he was a hard pusher politically to try to get, you know, ground fighting into the academy at that time. Well, we finally kind of got that on. But you know yourself, if you don't train or you bring people in, uh, you get a lot of people going, well, listen, I'm hurt. So let me get a work workman's comp form and all of a sudden they're like well you know you're going to have to slow down on this grappling so it's really and i was faced with that with with everything through my career i've seen it firsthand so there's always going to be a pocket of people that are good to uh to learn from and uh you know train with but you also have these people who don't do anything and when they do do something they get hurt or they get hurt because they didn't like doing the training to begin with. All right. Do you so, think it's the department's responsibility or do you think it's the individual's responsibility to train themselves? I think it's a shared responsibility. I think, you know, we tried to, uh, there was a lot of things that over the years we tried to get on as far as like fit tests and stuff. I mean, why wouldn't you want me as a fit officer next to you? I mean, it's, you know, there's no reason for us to, you know, be in bad shape when we're doing the job we're doing. You, you have to be able to carry someone out of a house, if need be. Carry them out of a car. Help somebody who fell down in, in the, the jail. You still have to pick them up, you know? All right. I mean, you're going to, you know, and you got to get in there. You know, I mean, the part of the DT program itself, the problem is you're taking gross motor skills, no matter what it is, trying to dissect it, make it simple, so that the average Joe can take with him a few things and then you have other training issues like people who don't like training so you're you're trying to wean people into training who may not they're going to be looking at the clock versus kind of respecting what you have to teach them so i think it's incumbent on instructors it's incumbent upon the person learning and i think as instructors too you know as i get older unfortunately 
um, you know, I've learned how to, I kind of don't push it all the time. You have to be able to train sensibly for your own body. You know your body better than anybody. If you need a day off or two days off, take it. If you call me up, and i got a class going Monday night, Thursday nights, doing group classes. I teach, you know, six hours a week. That's not a lot, but I teach six hours a week, guaranteed. But you call me up and you say, you know, John, last week we were doing this technique and, you know, my arm's a little wrenched from this, this, and this. Hey, you know what? Take, take the night off if you want. I'll see you when I see it. You know, I mean, that's all there is to it. Don't want to lose the student. Don't want him to re-injure his arm. And, I, you know, for, in my case, I, I have a, <laughs> a lot of guys are in their 40s and 50s that currently train with me, which there's, I don't, I'm not prejudiced. I would take some young people for sure, but, you know, yeah, but there's the a lot of good. there's a lot of guys that do train regularly that I know that are in their fifties and even in their sixties who are in a lot better shape than some some people who are in their twenties. And I've seen a few myself, and kudos to them. You know, Dan Inasanto still teaches. He's eighty three years old. Yeah, and he looks great. And, and he's he's doing what he does. I mean, you know, I spending a lot of time with the guy. I mean. Who knows how long, you know, he's going to be around. I hope he's around forever. But, you know, he's got, he's holding on to so much. He's got so much knowledge. Eh, you know, it's it's uh, it, it definitely is incumbent on the individual. The department itself should just really, um, you know, I remember some of the things that they did. I mean, AOST was a step in the right direction to try to make things uniform. You know, when they came up with, the, you know, the AOST program. Yeah. But, uh, you know, training quarterly just took to me is, uh, is bare, bare bones, which is what we were doing. And the only reason we were able to do it was I was the sergeant. You know, so now you didn't have a scheduling problem. You know, I had Joe Hearns. I don't know if you know Joe. He's on, on the department. Joe, Joe was a motivator. He was a good dude. He had great DTs and he liked to do the gauntlet at the end. So, you know, not a lot of people like to, you know, oh man, I got sweaty, you know. Come on, get in there, have some fun. Yeah, well, like you you said, you know, somebody gets hurt and you got to stop. Yeah, well, I I did have a, I had a workman's cop form out of one of those guys too, you know, out of one of the, one of the guys in the group, but you know, pretty, pretty good success overall. I mean, there's just going to be people that complain. You got to, you got to keep marching forward. I think the best thing you can do is uh, just find ways to motivate them and find to let them know that it's important, you know? Yeah. I mean, you can't do it all for them. You cannot do it all for them. They have to realize that if they're not training, they're already a leg down as far as I'm concerned. And if they're not hitting the gym, they're a leg down, you know? Yeah. At least the doing gym. Something. Wow, you know? Yeah. But, but um, you know, so kind of is what it is. So, you know, I, right now I've got the small group. we got a couple days a week. Uh, I kind of get a lot of law enforcement, uh, just just from being in town for as long as I have been, and yeah, those are the guys that know me. You know. So these so, classes that you teach, is this something where you travel around the around the country, or you just teach it in town? Uh, Southwestern. I don't like to go too far from home. You know, I'm I'm married, and you know, I'm happily married. So <laughs> you know, there's always a there's yeah. always a, a balance with life. Uh, I guess, if, you know, if, if there was a good conference or something, I'd probably consider it. But, um, you know, just, just kind of seeking out different things and devoting some more time to training and, and just changing my focus a little bit. You know, it's a big circle. I mean, unfortunately, there's not enough hours and days of the week to train in every single thing, you know, and then your body doesn't always let you do everything the way you used to do it. So you just have to adapt. So, you know, the Kali stuff is very big right now. Uh, it's very doable. It's, it's something you can do if your knees are sore or your back is bad. You can still practice some things. I think probably most martial arts, you can practice something. Yeah. You just have to have the right attitude to say, you know what? Maybe I can't train tonight, but let me sit off to the side with my notebook. Maybe I can take some notes. You know? What about, I mean, what about you know, um, I'm really into um, like sparring. For me, I think, you know, sparring is probably the most important aspect of training any martial art. I mean, what, what do you think? I think sparring, because of the force, 
uh, whether you're doing Thai or you're doing boxing, wrestling, or grappling, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or whatever, I think it's uh, it, it's awesome because that's the force. It's the kind of the force pusher. You can't just do something. You actually have to kind of go with it, react, figure out how to deal with a bigger person or more flexible or quicker guy. There's a lot of good chess that you get out of that. And it's like jujitsu yoga, you know, it, it just, it's anaerobic at the end of the day. It definitely has its place. But, you know, you put me in the guard and, you know, I punch your face. Would the guard open up? Most maybe, likely. maybe not, right? Yeah. So, so everything kind of has its place. And, you know, boxing has its place. And boxing is, you know, very raw in terms of, you know, jab, cross, hook, blah, 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 you know. I mean, you should be practicing strikes, you know. I mean, you have to, you know. You get a guy in a good position. You, you know, you can't always lock him, you know. You know, maybe maybe your ideal thing is to, you know, survive whatever the situation is in your environment. Back away, go to your next weapon if you have one, you know. All right. So... When you started training as a, as a child, you said you started training at 11? 12 years old. 12 years old. I mean, did that help yeah. your self-confidence as you got into middle school, high school? You know, it's funny you said that because, you know, a lot of people, you know, I don't train kids. And uh, just because I try to keep the subject matter very serious, right? So if you don't get up, like, FYI, you know, there's always more kids than there are adults yeah. trying to do stuff, you know? But... Um, it gave me, it gave me structure, and I, I'm going to say it gave me confidence as a young kid because it was point fighting. I mean, listen, everybody has probably done it or been exposed to it at some point, you know. And when you're 12 years old, you know, you're just not fully developed as ways yet, you know. And uh, I mean, until you start, you know, growing a little bit more, where you start investigating other things things that are going to work for you, you know? I mean, if I had my preference, like people will talk to me, I'll say, listen, if you want them to do kickboxing and that's the thing or, you know, some kind of kicking art, sometimes I'll say, you know, high boxing a little better in terms of, you know, it's a force multiplier. You know, you got elbows, you got knees, you know, it's, it could be nasty, you know? Right. But, but as far as like kids, you know, karate for kids and some of that stuff, I, I, I kind of think for the most part, you got to go check it out yourself, see how big the student to teacher ratio is. I mean, even if it's another art that you maybe in the back of your mind, you say, well, I wouldn't do Taekwondo because they kick all the time. I'm just not into it. Or my body's not built like that. Or I don't think it's for real, whatever. You got to go down and see what the instructor looks like. How does he articulate and teach? Is he good? Good to your kid? Can you trust him? How big are the classes? You know, and is your kid getting anything out of it is the big thing. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, is he just getting a pat on the back for not doing much? Or is it after school homework session that they're watching your kids for you? All right. I mean, I, ta I taught at the boys club for a short stint back, you know, years ago at the, I think it's called Top of Lindell up there. It's, but I had zillions of kids and I'm doing a free program for the kids. And I'm trying to, you know, you can't do that much. It's got to be like, it's got to be like teaching cops, really. Raw motor skills. You know, you're not giving them a lot. But I, you know, the parents would drop their kids off and it was like a babysit, you know, babysitting type scenario. So it was not that long lived because, you know, the parents would show up, the kids would try to run off the floor. You know, you couldn't maintain order, which right. if, you're, if you're looking at the martial way, you got to have discipline. So it was just a tough environment. I mean, I didn't mind doing it for free, trying to help out, but it just didn't work out. We had a party. So uh, knowing what you know now, um, if you could implement changes in any police department's uh, defensive tactics, what would it be? Well, it's, uh, well, I think we've made a lot of progress, first of all. I think there's, you know, if you look at the DT manual and you're scanning through things, it seems like whoever's running DTs tends to sway things their way. You know, you'll see like Krav, Krav, you know, Krav techniques come out. You know, the Israeli fighting system yeah. has some, you know, gun, gun disarms and things. And then sometimes you have Brazilian Jiu Jitsu guys running. So now they want to grapple most of the time. But I think the overall picture, if you look at the manual, it has kind of everything in there it has punching, it has kicking. 
I would say the department needs to just be progressive and, you know, with a minimal, a finite amount of time, you got to kind of figure out what you can teach, you know, within that finite period. Now, the AOST program, they, they had boxing one year. One year they had some grappling maneuvers. One year all we're doing is gun takeaways. You know, you, you train on a lot of things. And the book is very thick. You know, I mean, you got to print it up nowadays, but it, the material is immense. And it's not necessarily bad. It's just the fact that we don't focus enough time on it. So my recommendation would be to uh, talk to the higher levels of uh, the policing area, captains and stuff, and ensure everybody's on board. Everybody's on board to dedicate when they get a training day, whether you're in corrections or police. Let's, let's give our guys, you know, some regular time. I don't care if it's four hours a month. At least you know it's four hours every month. If it's a shift a month, give a shift a month. But but get something on record so it's more uniform for everybody. Okay, so that's that's uh, that's me in a nutshell. And you know, uh, as far as I'm concerned, though, with the, with the martial arts, um, everybody has favorites. Everybody has subjective favorites too. You know, yeah. I have favorites. You know, we all have favorites. But you know, I I love grappling. I love high boxing. I love C-Lot. And I love uh, the various forms of Kali. I'm a member of the Bikini Tersha Tactical Association. And that association is really made up of like cops and former cops and guys like that. Kali can be really helpful for you too if you're a cop, uh, just like grappling can be, because the emphasis is always on weaponry. It's always on, you know, you protect your castle, right? You're going to protect your gun and go for your knife, you know, there's a lot of implementation and training you can do in that area. And Kali does have elbows and knees as well. So, um, like I said, there's just a lot of ways to skin a cat, but the circle keeps going around and, uh, you just got to keep training. Exactly. Yeah. I think, um, I think if you can just pretty much stay in a decent shape, you have a pretty good chance of defending yourself on the street against someone who you know, who may not train in any specific area. Well, that's, I think you saw that when you, you know, if you were a UFC fan like I was all these years, that's the one thing you saw later is that it didn't really come down to style as much as it came down to individual. Right. You know, everybody turned into really being a gladiator. And sometimes it was a war of attrition. Yeah, exactly. You know, who's, who's, the, who's the toughest, you know, who could take a shot, you know? And unfortunately, in the policing area, it's the same way. Right. Uh, you know, some of our people in that area haven't been in a fight in their entire life. You know, so I think we're, you know, we've tried to do some things to give them that stress inoculation, you know, the red man suit, right. push them around a little bit, you know, get them out there. But some people just haven't, they haven't come from an area where they've maybe had a fight in high school or grammar school or whatever you know so i think even in uh, mma um you know most of the fighters are about the same skill level maybe one fighter might be you know better at grappling than the other fighter but the other fighter may be better at striking but i think when it comes down to probably 90 percent of who wins a fight it's going to probably be the person that has better cardio you know who doesn't tire out because you know you get tired and It doesn't really matter what you know at that point because, you know, you're you're pretty much fighting the air, entering your lungs. Yeah, well, you're you're right. I mean, that's definitely a component. Larry Hartzell, I talked to him one time. You know, he passed away like in '06 or '07, and uh, I would tell your your uh, listeners to actually Google you know, Google his name. He's on social media. He is like a jail. I think I was telling you, Larry Hartzell once told me. You know, we were on the map. Because, you know, listen, when everything is all equal, that's when strength really will prevail. You know, so. Yeah. But just like just like you said, you need the cardio as well, you know. Do you think uh, strength and size matters? Oh, I, I do think so, for sure. I, uh, I, I kind of believe that, you know, obviously, that's why we have weight division and some of the stuff. Right. You can still be very talented and be lighter than the next guy, you know, but you 
think about it, bigger, more weight, more muscle, break a lot of holes as well, you know, in any kind of match. All right. What about like in um, in martial arts? Because, you know, there are some martial arts, you know, that claim that, you know, size and strength doesn't matter and that, you know, use one person's weight against them or you might be faster than that person. What do you think about well, that I, sense? I, yeah, I like how you set that question up. Um, I'll give you like a for instance. Uh, Kung Tao has a bunch of like obviously predetermined type techniques, but realistically chokes and you know beer hugs and things like that. Can someone throw an elbow? Can someone throw a finger jam to the eyes? Can someone stop someone's foot? You know, somebody smaller could do those things and really could hurt somebody bigger. So, you know, that's why we teach women certain things. And it's usually, you know, I don't care if you call it stiletto jiu-jitsu, but, you know, they can stomp on someone's foot, and there's a lot of little bones down there. Yeah. So no matter how big you are, uh, you know, the groin shot has always been like the, the you know, the given, especially in the Filipino martial arts. They're kicking the groin constantly, you know. But, you know, um, if, if you ever threw a kick, you know, sometimes it's forward pressure. It's not always upward. You know what I mean? It's like you got to do it. still got to do it the right way. Train yeah. a variety of, of different ways. But I do think there's some truth to that. That an average Joe, I, I do think you need something. Like if you if you cannot lift a weight or, or do some push-ups or whatever, I think you have to be in average shape to fight. That means average. It means you've got to be able to take as well as give. So all these dirty techniques sound great. Will they work? If you're sharp, you're quick, you know, it could work. I mean, you're going to it's all precise, right? I mean, karate, if taught the right way, is something of hitting people in certain spots. Now, it's meant to be nasty, the way it was created initially. A lot of these arts were more combative arts. We have changed everything up ranking structures and we've done all this stuff you know but when you think about it the intentions were there for what you know we have a samurai you know uh it's got to be got to be compliment after the sword is gone what do you do you know all right got to be got to be nasty you know i mean if your mouth is there do you bite them well if it's your life's on the line you're going to bite them so i think that's uh so to answer your question, I think, you know, a reasonable amount of uh, being average would be good for anybody. Yeah. And then you still have to have training. You still have to have training. That's all there is to it, you know? Uh, and, you know, maybe the other part of component of uh, fighting is mental awareness. You know, I mean, people have to know when trouble is kind of heading their way. <laughs> all right. And, and, you know, and, and you've got to pick up on cues, signs, hints. That things aren't going well. Yeah, probably the more knowledge you have of the situation, the better, the better off you'll be. Well, exactly. You know, and just like you know, your mom would tell you, you know, you get more from honey than you do from you know vinegar, right? Yeah. So sometimes you gotta figure out how to get out of something. You know? Yeah, but I think sometimes when, say, you're you're fighting a bigger guy, you know, like in a sport match. Um, strategy there's a lot of strategy involved in in trying to win the win the fight but probably on the street i don't think you have time for any type of strategy to say tire a person out or you know keep moving away or something like that yeah and you have to like look you know on the street it's a little different you have to like look around you you have to be wary of you know, here you are in a parking garage or you're, you know, you, wherever you're at, you got to know where you're at. Right. And then the other thing is, do you, ha- do you have anything on you, you know? I mean, I'm covered under 218 for life. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a weapons carrier. So, you know, what, you know, now I've just added another equation to my self-defense, right? So, you know, but I also added a plus, but I also added a minus. You know, you've got retention issues, you know? So. Hey, how do you, how do you think, you know, um, how do you think uh, people can defend themselves against, uh, like, some of these mass shooters, mass shootings that we've been having lately? How can you? Be, how can somebody be prepared for for something like that? I don't think we'll ever be fully prepared. I think you know, if you you notice, um, we've done a lot in this city to 
I mean, everything unfortunately happens. I mean, we were trained an active shooter forever, or what seemed forever, you know, MACTEC. And I think Metro was a good department as far as a big department to kind of address that a lot. You know, we have rally points and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The public doesn't have to know everything we do. But with that being said, I have seen uh, programs being offered to community groups, First Tuesday, et cetera, et cetera, talking about active assailant. You know, they're not really calling them shooter anymore. They've changed it to be softer. Assailant is a better word, but it is what it is. I think, you know, I think first of all, you should start at home. I mean, this is horrible stuff that's going on. I mean, actually, there's, there's a point of satiation, meaning we hear this like weekly now. So we're hearing this like so much regularly now that we just go, man, that's that sucks. You know, that's horrible that that occurred. Well, we had it in our backyard not too long ago. But we were getting desensitized to how many of these are going on. Yeah. And, and that's really a shame. That's a shame that, that our, our country and the way we live is threatened in this way. But you got, you know, everybody wants to figure out the ideologies behind all this gun control people, politics behind it is kind of, you know, whether you're for or against it is pretty ridiculous. But as far as I'm concerned, you know, since I have, uh, you know, I can carry, um, I carry much more frequently. I carry kind of what I would say is like regular, you know. So right. There's a few instances that I don't carry, but, you know, I, I carry and I want to, you know, I don't carry because I want to show off. It's, it's hidden, but, you know, realistically, I want to, like, protect my family. You know, even though I might not be working there to be, something was to go down, I would feel horrible just being there, not being able to do anything. Yeah. So it's it's kind of a, a time we live in. And it's it's an interesting time for that, you know. But I think we're getting, there's a lot of messages out. If you look at the casinos, a lot of our former SWAT guys are running security at a lot of these places. They're doing a lot of active assailant slash shooter type training. So as far as tourism and all that, I mean, you know, that's that's our that's our cash cow. Got to take care of that too, you know. So yeah, I know. Um, I know uh, MGM hired um, kind of like their own uh, special response team or emergency response team. Yeah, most of them are, are former SWAT guys. Yeah. So. I guess, um, you know, that's like their answer to to what happened in, in, on October 1st. But you see, like, well, um, they have people walking around. From what I heard, people are walking around with assault rifles, and then you have guys that are undercover, you know, ready to, yeah, ready to act. Yeah, there's, yeah, I know, but there's a lot of these... Uh, I, wouldn't, I don't want to say gun, gun rights because, you know, open carry people and things like that, really really trying to press press the buttons of law enforcement, you know. So, um, we, I know we still have those guys around town, but, I mean, you have a lot of legitimate people just carrying. And if you're listening to the podcast, uh, just a short story. I was at Starbucks, and I, I was in uniform. I saw a gentleman who would come in regularly. And I was on green dirt, so I would start my shift, get a cup of coffee, and then head out. But the guy would come in with a gun, and he'd have it on his side. And I'm like, you know, is it odd? Sure it is. Am I afraid? No. Does he have a right to carry? Sure he does. But guess what? I have a right to have a consensual encounter. So I walk up to him. Hi, how you doing? Blah, blah, blah. Have some conversation with him at the counter. I'm like, hey, what kind of gun are you carrying? I mean, you don't have to show me, but, you know, what are you carrying? You know, well, I'm, I just carry this for whatever, blah, blah, blah. You know, okay, so I have some talk with the guy. The guy walks out. I actually walk outside with him. And about two, you know, about a week later or two weeks later, I see the guy again. So now he kind of knows me, and I was nice to him. And I didn't challenge him, right? So, I mean, he didn't think I did. I was soft. He says to me, um, you know, we're giving our greetings. So I asked him, and I says, hey, listen, i got to ask you this. I said, I see you coming in here all the time. you got your gun on your side. Did you ever think of getting a carrying concealed weapon? He goes, uh, well, no, I got my rights. My right is, is I can carry, open carry anywhere I want, as long as I, da, 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 da. I says, okay, 
within limitation for sure. You can carry, you can open carry. I'm not here to argue that with you. What I'm talking about is man to man. Aren't you worried about somebody grabbing your firearm and like using it? Cause it's all out in the open. It's a buffet. You know? So he looks at me and he goes, I never really thought of that. I said, well, this is the job I'm in. You know, I mean, <laughs> I walk around with a gun all the time, but you know, retention, I got to protect my gun, holster, hands. But if you, if they don't know that you have one or CCW, don't you think that's a little softer? I mean, let's face it. Open carry is open carry. Do some people feel threatened when they see a gun? Some people inherently, when they see that, they're threatened. You know? Yeah. Just depends. You know, it just depends. But it's an interesting story. But, you know, overall, you know, you do have some people who are just uh, citizens with, they want to use the right to carry. And then, yeah, they have that right to have open carry. But it doesn't mean that they're smart. It doesn't mean that they're doing the best thing they can do. All right. You know, if they're, if they're that good and they lawfully can obtain a firearm, take the class, learn a few things about carrying concealed weapons. I think, you know, gun ownership is a big topic, but, you know, with gun ownership comes responsibility. So, oh, yeah. yeah. Like, that's, um, that's, that's that one, that one guy that just got arrested by the FBI up there in the Northwest. Yes. Uh, he was one of those, um, guys that would carry his, um, assault rifle around his neighborhood a few years back. And then he got, um, they arrested him for, um, some, um, you know, making uh, making plans or making threats, you know, to shoot up large people. I mean, large crowds or areas. Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we used to have those calls, you know, and, and they would they would crop up, you know. We had a guy patrolling a Starbucks across the street. He had a rifle out, you know, and he had a guy uh, 20, 30 feet from him with a camera. So, you know. You got to look at what their motivation is, right? You know, but you, but you know, if, if someone's walking around my neighborhood and they have an AR-15 and they're doing a, uh, you know, their walk and, you know, they're walking around. Guess what? We're going to call the police. I'll probably have my gun out. Probably going to have a phone in my hand, maybe even my vest on. You know, I still do have my vest, so I can I can gear up if I have to. But I am not going out there. But I'm telling you what. We are not letting this guy patrol the neighborhood. So. Exactly. But, um, anyway, you know. hey, it was, uh, thanks for, uh, coming on the show, John. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, if any of your, uh, your listeners are interested, um, I, I'm still in town. I run a club called the Rossi Fighting Arts Academy. And we are on Facebook. So make sure you let it like our page so I can, we can continue our talks. And uh, I do teach a variety of stuff, a lot of weaponry, C-Lock, Kali. And, uh, you know, maybe one of these days I'll be back on the mat with you. Yeah, you should come by and train. Yeah, I definitely have that itch, for sure, for sure. And you're with uh, Walter, right? Yeah, with Walter. You know, Yeah, I uh, met him uh, years ago at Nikas. So, yeah. you know. Yeah, these days I just, um, you know, I'm, I'm getting a little older myself, so I just do it to keep in shape. Yeah, you got, there's a lot well, of young guys, you know, coming after me. It's hard to keep up. They always want to take down the big fish. you <laughs> got to be careful. Yeah, big fish is getting old. Well, that's, you know, like I said, you know, one of the things that, you know, uh, you, you may have a philosophical similarity with me in terms of how you train. And it's just, yeah, you got to pace yourself and, you know, doesn't mean stop doing anything, but you just got to be aware of your body and sometimes give your body a rest is okay. Yeah. Yeah, I have to learn that. But, um. Yeah, and, you know, here's the other thing I'll just tell you. When you're in a real bad position. I, for years, I used to fight through a lot of stuff, and your neck later on in life feels a lot worse. Than yeah. You figured out, you know, you could have tapped for another day. Yeah. And uh, that's just something when you're young. So all you youngins out there doing jujitsu, be careful. Neck injuries will, some things can stop your career. Yeah, neck and back injuries. 
it's okay to tap and then get the guy tomorrow, you know? Yeah. But uh, thanks again, John. Well, I really appreciate it. Well, you take care. Thanks for the conversation, and uh, I hope to hear from you soon.